1: One of the pleasures of doing this job now for three plus years is that we have had so many great guests on our shows and we've gotten to the point now where we can feel comfortable bringing some guests back, talking to them for a second time, expanding our conversations beyond just, you know, how did you get into the game of tennis? Let's go through some of your career accomplishments. Let's talk about what you want to accomplish moving forward. We can have some deeper dives, talk about some, you know, more dense topics, more interesting, depending on your interest level in the game as a whole versus individual players, and that's why I'm really excited to present our conversation we had this week with Mitchell Kruger, uh, the number one 95 player right now in the live rankings, former U.S. Open junior semifinalist. He won his first ch- uh, challenger title last year in Dallas, a guy who's a 1994, and you guys know I'm a 95er, so he was always at the top of our class or the top of the class above me, a name I have grown very familiar with, and if you're a fan of the challenge, Circuit, you know his name quite well at this point as well. And the best part about this conversation was that we didn't have to waste time's the wrong word because the the amazing different and differing backstories of so many of the players on tour is what makes tennis such an incredible sport. It's that it's a gladiator sport, right? It's all on the individual to succeed or fail based on their own uh, successes or failures based on their own accomplishments, I suppose, based on their own level of play. And you know, today with Mitchell, we got to take a deep dive into some other topics. I got to ask him, you know, first and foremost what it's been like to deal with this coronavirus pandemic, what it's been like to respond financially, training-wise. He was on the grounds at Indian Wells, semi-finalist and finalist in the Challenger singles and doubles, respectfully, had just gotten a wild card into the main draw of the Masters 1000 event. Uh, And he is, you know, he had, uh, he was there and he could talk about what that was like, the uncertainty and chaos that surrounded it, you know, how he actually heard the news that Indian Wells was going to be canceled and the aftermath of that. Of course, you know, he's been outspoken on social media, on Twitter, talking about the flaws he sees in some of the ATP's responses to this coronavirus. And he talks about them more in depth throughout the podcast. We also talk about, though, some really great things. He had been off to a really good season to start his his 2020 you know semifinals at a couple of challengers uh 7-6 in the third losses 7-6 uh, in the third loss in Australian Open qualifying to Ernesto Escobedo You know, he talks about, uh, and I think he ended last season with a semifinal as well, but he talks about why his results have taken a jump, why he's playing more confidently. He even gets into the weeds, you know, what specifically in his game has improved, what adjustments tactically he's made. Uh, You know, we talk about film study as well. We talk about what players he, whose style of play he tried to emulate, uh, the players he was watching growing up, some some of his favorite to watch on YouTube now. And then, of course, we end with a rapid fire, some fun quarantine edition questions and you know it's an hour-long conversation because we do get quite candid and there's you know a lot mitchell goes in depth and i really appreciate that about him it's what made this such an outstanding podcast quickly before we get to that interview go to uh if you haven't yet you are looking for more content tennis related you need a break from the daily stresses of this coronavirus pandemic of your daily life you just want to be distracted please go check out our YouTube channel right now. and You know you search Cracked Rackets in that search bar. It'll take you two minutes to get subscribed, and by the time you're subscribed, you can be guaranteed. Then you're not going to miss any of the great stuff Super Producer Daniel Westhoff is up to on there. Segments like Overserved, our 10-minute look each week at the comedy that happens throughout social media, throughout the tennis world. Uh, of course, we've also got CR Classics on there, our look at some of the best matches in tennis history, uh, interviews that we've turned into video podcasts just to extend the effect. And he, again, super producer Danny Wostoff killing it on there, so go subscribe to that. If you've missed any of our daily coverage of you know the news as it comes out about the coronavirus and how it continues to affect the tour, be sure to go listen to our mini-break podcast. We've also taken a look back in history on those pods, looking at some of the best five-year runs, some of the best primes of professional tennis players over the past 30 years. It's crazy to say that 1990 was over 30 years ago that shows me that I'm getting closer to 30 than I feel comfortable with, but that's a conversation for another time. If you've missed any of that, this week it's been a WTA focus. I've talked Justine Ennin, I've talked uh, Venus Williams, and I believe at the time this podcast will be recorded I will have already talked about the third player in that trio, Monica Sellis, and on tomorrow's mini-break podcast Fridays I will be comparing and contrasting the careers of the three, arguing for who I think accomplished the most during their tennis playing career. So that's the lookout on what we are up to at crack rackets missed any of it again go to the website crackrackets.com but you came here for an interview and that's what i'm going to give you now hope you all enjoy my conversation with the one and only mitchell krueger
0: but right now it's star time
1: Joining us on the Crack Interviews podcast today, it's a returning guest, a guy who currently sits at number one ninety five in the ATP Live rankings, and I'm going to say it: the player who put up the most impressive two match result of the 2020 season thus far, dropping six zero first sets in both of his first two matches before making the semifinals of the Indian Wells Challengers. Mitchell Kruger, welcome back to the show. How are you holding up?
2: Hey, I'm uh, doing pretty well. Uh- Could definitely be worse. You know, I'm healthy and everyone, uh, my family and everyone is healthy. So, you know, can't really complain.
1: Oh, I'm glad to hear it. I'm at the point where uh, I decided not to shave during this quarantine, and, like, one (laughs) half of my mustache attaches to my beard, the other half doesn't, and it's just, like, it's unbearably itchy at this point, so that's where I'm at, but I'm, you know, I'm very happy to hear uh, that you and your family are safe and healthy, and, of course, getting to do these conversations for me is one of the highlights of my day, just getting to escape my little quarantine zone, Uh, but to go back to something I sort of alluded to there at the beginning, you were at Indian Well uh when the cancellation of that event occurred when really the coronavirus pandemic first began to hit the tennis world and i'm sure you've talked about it a bunch of times but just to ask you you know what was it like to be on the grounds i know you had gotten a wild card into the indian wells main draw what was that sequence of events like for you
2: i mean for me it was completely out of left field i think for most guys it was the same you know um I think they made the decision to cancel it on, like, Sunday evening before the qualifying was supposed to start. Obviously, that close to when a tournament starting, basically 99% of the tournament is already there. So, you know, you've got guys that have been practicing, training in the gym, doing everything, you know, getting ready to play. And then, you know, hours later, the the word comes down that (laughs) tournament is, is, I guess they said, postponed but i think we all know that most likely it's going to be canceled so uh i mean it obviously sucked a lot and you know at the time was really unprecedented because i think it was really like the first big event in pretty much any sport that made that decision but Mm -hmm. i mean it was especially kind of crazy for me because you know i was out there at the courts practicing that day and Nothing seemed out of place. Everything seemed like it was ready to go. You know, even talking to some of like the ATP physios that day, you know, they had no indication. Some of the tour managers gave no indication. Certainly, none of the players had any indication. So it was definitely very unexpected. Yeah. But I guess you know, looking back on it, it's definitely made probably the right decision. Even though at the time everyone was kind of up in arms, you know, not really believing it.
1: Yeah, no. It, it certainly sounds chaotic, and you know I'm curious because there's so much talk nowadays about communication between the ATP two or the ATP players. How there's no players' union, but when a sequence of events like that happens, how do you find out all of your information? Do you get an email eventually? Is it through word of mouth? How does it, you know something like hey, Indian Wells? It sounds like they're going to be canceled. Filter through the ranks of players.
2: So that was actually a pretty big topic, you know, as all this stuff was starting to go down. You know, I, for one, learned from Twitter that the tournament was canceled. And as far as I know, there was maybe only a handful of players, maybe like the guys that are on the ATP Council, that were kind of in a meeting where they first floated the idea that it might be canceled. But you know, at no point did they ever send out an email or text or anything kind of like giving guys a heads up, you know, it was just kind of like started out as some rumors. And then, you know, eventually the tweet came in from their official Twitter account from the uh, Indian Wells official Twitter account. And then pretty soon that's when that whole snowstorm of information came flooding of press releases and reactions and you know all that stuff but you know that was the the initial announcement i felt like could have been handled a lot better at least for the players but then as the weeks have gone on you know ATP has made a, a big effort to make everyone or put everyone in the loop before an official decision or announcement has been made through like some emails and stuff so you know it's it's was kind of annoying and frustrating at the time but it's at least encouraging to see that you know they're acknowledging it and trying to trying to make it better mm-hmm. so because c- communication right now is Obviously crucial.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, you say it's gotten better. I'm curious: is the information for the players come from the player council? I know you talked about, you know, that's a, a tweet when the French Open announced they were just kind of like, "Hey, you know, we're pu- we're, we're making well, our bad, move."
2: That I think apparently surprised everyone. But
1: yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. Um, but is it through the player council? Is it the ATP president? People from the ATP organization reaching out. I, I, you would think the player council probably handles the player news, but it's not a form union so there are so many different sources of information
2: you know as far as i know obviously where i'm ranked i don't play necessarily all the big tournaments that most of these top player council guys do you know outside of the slams but you know they don't typically like announce when council meetings are going to be i think those are just kind of between them you know unless maybe you know if you're higher ranked maybe you're more in the loop where i am right now i have no idea could be the case but uh you know i think the the most of the communication comes either through like text messages from some of the tour managers or like big email blasts from atp whether that's you know a private message from like the CEO or the chairman or just the communications team kind of puts a little pre press release together, you know, cause all the division one ATP members are in, I guess that database. So, you know, it's the same kind of email communication that you get at tournaments as far as draws and schedules and that kind of thing, you know?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's what it's, that's what it's been more like, you know, it's been a few weeks since we've really gotten one. Because obviously with no one really knows, (laughs) you can't really make any decisions right now. Um, I think the last one that we got was around the Wimbledon cancellation. But, uh, you know, that was, I would say, pretty expected, to be honest.
1: Mm-hmm. And for you uh, in this era, and uh, you know, I do want to ask you about non-coronavirus related things, and I promise I will. But uh, no for you, right now, as just a player who was, you know, playing some pretty good tennis, semifinals Indian Wells Challenger, I think semifinals Newport Beach as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's been the most frustrating part of this layoff for you? I mean, obviously, safety, health, all comes first, and we all uh, you yeah. know acknowledge that. But you know, has it been difficult finding practice times? How have you... You uh, managed to, you know, stay in shape and keep everything going to where when you get back on tour, you can keep uh, your momentum in terms of results going.
2: Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, it was uh, kind of tough for me. Obviously, having I felt like I had some good momentum, especially coming from the Indian Wells Challenger and then winning the wild card into main draw, which is a, a huge opportunity. You know, I was feeling really good, playing really well, and, you know, really excited to make the most of the opportunity. And, um, you know, we all know how that turned out. Obviously, the tournament's not on anymore. So that was kind of the initial disappointment. And, um, yeah, it's you know, besides kind of getting over that and, and worrying about what could have been, you know, I've, I've just been trying to make sure I'm doing some – some at-home workouts every day. You know, it's it's been pretty much impossible to practice. At least, you know, initially the first week or two, you know, I just kind of didn't even think about practicing, just kind of like getting that initial frenzy of, of all the coronavirus stuff, just kind of let it settle. And then, obviously, as time went by, a lot of places have started, you know, being shut down and being tough to find courts and stuff and you know obviously it's tough with tennis because while yes there is plenty of space between you and whoever you're hitting with or practicing with you know you're still you're still both touching the balls you know there's a lot of mutual things that kind of go in par with that and you know it's tough to know you know if if i hit with someone if they've been taking the same precautions that i have you know if, not really leaving the house, only really going to the grocery store and stuff, you know, washing your hands, doing all that. So, you know, honestly, I haven't really been able to practice very much since everything kinda of went down and I think you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I think I would say I'm probably in the majority as far as that goes. You know, I don't know me personally, I don't know many guys that are full out training, you know, right now just because you know, I guess it kind of depends on everyone's setup and stuff. If you've got a private court and a private gym, then by all means, you yeah, know, but not all of us are that fortunate to have that. And, you know, another way I look at it is that you know, obviously right now the the tour is put off until July 13th and that's like at least three months away from now. So, you know, I'm not trying to rush into things and Kind of putting my health and everything ahead of, of, I guess tennis in a sense right now. But I'm still trying to stay in shape and stay active and doing workouts every day and going on runs and enjoying the nice weather, especially as it's getting hotter. You know, the, the longer this goes on, so you know, I'm I'm trying to make make the most of
1: my time. Mm-hmm. I had a tweet that I was going to bring up. If anyone wants to come and build a tennis court in Mitchell Kruger's backyard, he'll love you forever and ever. And Please, yeah, spread the word. Yeah, exactly. For obvious reasons, um, you know, a, a couple of questions off of that. Um, I feel like, not to say any player's too good to hit against the wall, but I feel like at a certain level, you're too good to hit against a wall. Like, it can't be a dry wall. It can't be, you know, something just average. It's got to be a, a legit, concrete, you know, solid thing. And so for you, you know, you see all the TikToks and all people, you can do certain little volley things maybe against the wall. But you, I feel like for you at this point, you probably have to practice on a on an actual court, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've unfortunately where I am right now, I've yet to find a really good, solid flat wall where there's concrete around it. You know, where the ball would actually bounce. Yeah, I've found a few walls that are kind of like brick walls, but obviously that doesn't do any good because the ball kind of shoots off in every direction. You have no idea where it's going. So, you know, I've actually gotten to the point where, you know, I would go out there and just mess around on a wall at least for. 20 30 minutes just to kind of feel like i'm doing something but uh yeah i mean obviously perf- uh, if i had a preference you know i'd be out there on a on a private court that's kind of isolated and stuff but you know
1: okay.
2: it is what it is
1: now, I, I feel it's, like a brick know, wall would be a brick wall is good for footwork drills it's like it'll keep you active yes. it'll keep you on your toes Exactly.
2: You know, it's, I've tried and it's not pretty. I'll
1: (laughs) say that. No, no, for sure. And, you know, given the scheduling, uh, Uncertainty. We don't know what events are going to be played when or where. I saw the Binghamton Challenger recently canceled its event this season. You know that's bad end bad of bad yeah that's end of July, and so um, yeah. in terms of your you know scheduling and just the financial impact and all these you know are those the the most difficult things moving forward? It's just the uncertainty of it all.
2: having the uncertainty of not knowing well first of all when this is going to end or when things are going to go back to normal or about as normal as they're going to be that you know it's it is tough especially you know for us tennis players outside of injuries you know we never get more than a month maybe six weeks off throughout the year you know and that's in December when the tour is is over for the year and guys are kind of taking time to relax and recover from the long year and then mm-hmm. getting up to train for the next year. So, you know, for me, I don't, honestly, I don't know how to handle it. Having a minimum three months, you know, like I, I feel like, you know, how long can you like full out train before, like, you know, you need a break or you're, you're you kind of do your head in. Cause I feel like, three months is a long time to be going through like a full training block nonstop, you know, with no kind of breaks and pauses in there. And that's the best case scenario, which uh, I think everyone is aware of how bad the conditions are in New York right now. But you know, I'd say it's a very, very real possibility that U S open is at least not going to happen when it's supposed to happen, whether that's able to be pushed back, you know, who knows no one knows right now but you know i i'm kind of operating under the belief at least right now that you know there's a good possibility that we might not even play the rest of the year
1: yeah i I think that's a fair assumption i think
2: I, i think most most people are honestly probably in that same situation you know look obviously i would love to be able to be playing again by july by august you know and if that's the case, you know, I get back into my training and make sure I'm ready to go when that when that time comes. But I think it's just it's a little little optimistic to expect that that's gonna be ending ending up happening and then you know, having tennis being such an international sport with so much international travel and so many different tournaments going on at the same time around the world that you know, tennis is probably one of the worst sports As far as the setup goes for this kind of thing, you know, it's not like it's a a league only in North America, like some of these other sports, like basketball and football and stuff, that really only have to worry about one country, you know, recovering. Tennis, you can't have tournaments in North America if tournaments in Europe can't be played or guys in Europe can't leave their countries to travel to other places. So it's, you know, I hate to say it, but, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think we might not be playing until there's a full vaccine or at least you know better confirmation that that the the virus is under control and that people have kind of stopped getting sick and stuff but i hope that doesn't happen but i think it's it's a possibility that people have to start considering
1: no I, I completely agree with you given the international nature particularly of the atp and wta tour you could see something maybe like a world team tennis happening where no, i they get yeah, the teams. that would be
2: yeah that's ideal i think yeah. i think you know for now i think they're probably really excited not excited obviously it's the wrong word yeah. to use in this situation but it's a it's an opportunity for them to kind of showcase what they've got going on and you know I'm fortunate that I, I signed up to play this year, you know, at the beginning of the year before any of this kind of happened. So now I'm hoping that at some point that season gets to go through and will kind of be a, a nice reprieve from you know the wear and tear of the tour but also a way to kind of get back into competitive
1: playing mm-hmm. definitely it is you know it, it's the one domestic league at least here in north america uh for tennis and it, the idea of again keeping teams and players in one location keeping everyone under a certain <laughs> protocol that could happen mm-hmm. in theory under the world team tennis uh umbrella but i'm curious you, you sort of talked about that uncertainty and how you relate to it personally you have been training non-stop as a tennis player probably since you were maybe 10 11 12 years old and yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah and I'm curious for you uh, you know maybe non-injury related but is this going to be your longest layoff from competitive tennis of your career and for obvious reasons uh, but you know yeah. how does that affect you
2: by far i mean I, I can't even going back to when i was like 10 9 10 you know, growing up playing like, tournaments in Texas, you at least have a, at least one tournament every month, you know, like the state tournaments. Mm-hmm. And then usually maybe one or two other weekends uh, in a month, I would have like a local tournament or just some, you know, something to get some matches. So, you know, honestly, as far back as I can remember, this is, will be by far the longest time I've gone without being able to play a tournament. Mm-hmm. And it definitely feels really weird. You know, I've already gone over a month since I've really last was able to train on the court, and that to me is like, like a ridiculous feeling, just in itself. And you know, even with the tournaments, it just adds another. Complex layer to that.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I feel like now is your time. Everyone who criticizes your forehand grip, just spend a month slapping forehands like Eastern grip <laughs> against the wall to see how it works. Because, yeah. you know, yeah. why not? Got the... Of the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so to get back to some of the tennis that you did play this 2020 season, you, uh, as we mentioned at the top, two six love first set losses in your first two match at the Indian Wells Challenger. You obviously bounced back to win both of those matches. You know, how were you feeling about your level in 2020? You had had a run of successful results. You know, were you feeling confident uh, about your play uh, thus far through the season?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, I was feeling, I was feeling about as confident as I have ever felt, and my game as a whole was feeling as, as well-rounded and as good as honestly, you know, my entire career. I felt like I was kind of definitely hitting a good stride and I'm 26 so you know I'm kind of reaching that prime physical peak you know that everyone says you you hit around your mid to late 20s that you know I feel like I'm I'm doing everything the right way and was having some good solid results to show for it and you know it is tough obviously not knowing when I'm playing again and you know, and all that, but I would prefer to be in the situation I'm in, you know, at least having a really, you know, what I felt a good start to the year kind of being cut off. And at least, you know, whenever we get back into it, hopefully I can kind of pick back up where that is, as opposed to feeling like I was struggling at the beginning of the year and then having the break, you know, not really knowing where things are. You know, I, I feel comfortable, but you know, at least at least I was doing a lot of positive things and things were going in the right direction for me. So, you know, if I can do it here, hopefully I can do it again whenever we come back. Mm -hmm,
1: Definitely.
2: You know, obviously uncertainty.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, without question. And, you know, you talked about 26, 28 being the physical prime and at a certain level, because if you've played tennis, you always think you're getting better. You never think you're playing worse than you were before. Mm -hmm. Um, But for you, do you feel as though, you know, physically you continue to progress and then also the flip side of that is you've been now on tour for about eight, you know, almost ten years. You know, what have, have you taken bigger strides, I guess, physically and with your game, or is it, you know, also mentally the strides you've taken just being around the block, being used to traveling week in, week out? Have you adjusted better to that lifestyle as well?
2: You know, I think for me... The biggest strides i've made at least in the last couple years has been in my game which you know when you're kind of in your mid-20s i feel like that's really uncommon you know usually by then it's more physical and mental you know i've always felt like i've been in good shape obviously the as the older i've got the older i get the more mature i get you know the more my body matures you know that's always going to be a natural progression as far as you know the physical side goes. and yeah, you know, I've always felt like mentally I've been pretty solid. You know, I've always had a good, a good like progression mindset, and I always like to travel. You know, traveling has never been an issue for me, even dating back to the juniors. So for me, you know, the last couple of years, my biggest steps forward have been as far have been kind of my game and almost redefining myself on court and I felt like this year I was starting to put it all together tournament to tournament not having a good week then a bad week and then you know kind of up and down weeks I felt like even a lot of the matches I've lost this year have been really good tight contested matches that you know it's just a matter of a couple points here there a couple points each set where can make the difference and you know I think that's a good positive thing for me that yeah, you that know, it's that that's probably one of the tougher areas. To
1: improve on- mm-hmm. I mean, two six four losses in the third. Two Dennis Kudla, who's obviously having a great yeah. year himself. Um, you know, you, you talk about taking the strides, and I always feel bad asking this question because you know, in team sports, if you ask an athlete, you know, what are the things you're excelling at, it doesn't matter if you give away the scouting report because you still have to scout for the other team. So it's not giving too okay. much away. Tennis, that's obviously not the case. But you talk about the strides in your game. I brought up the forehand, you know, as a joke, but obviously. Obviously, that's something I know you've talked about working on. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for you in your game, is it your, are you being more aggressive? Are, you know, is it physically you're just able to do certain things you weren't before? What has allowed you to take this stride to where now you've been, you know, consistently in the top 200 for a couple months stretch?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the biggest thing for me it was about a couple of years ago, a couple of off-seasons ago, I tweaked the grip on my forehand side a little bit. Kind of to give myself a little bit more, you know, room to be aggressive and to, you know, to be more linear with my strokes and stuff. And then, you know, mentally as well, just kind of giving myself the green light in matches to you know, play more aggressive and to not be, you know, caught up in the misses and the wins and the losses and kind of having that that just freedom to uh, you know, allow myself to to play the right way and to play on my terms. And those are the two, by far the two biggest areas that I had felt like throughout this year have have really shown up in matches. You know, it's always one thing to do it in practice and then to translate it into tournaments. And I felt like I was starting to translate it into tournaments and against good high level players as well, which you know, it is really encouraging.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, for you this year, you got the chance to defend your first challenger title. Of course, it was in your yeah. hometown in Dallas. And uh, I, again, I sort of mentioned there the three set loss to Kudla, but before that, 7 6 in the third, 11 9 in the breaker over Tomas Bellucci. Yeah. You know, what was it like for you to have to, de- you know, not only defend your first title, but to do it in your hometown? What did that experience do for you, you know, you mentally and just your game?
2: You know, it's always crazy for for tennis players. You know, I I feel like it's such a week-to-week sport. You know, you have a great week. It's tough to, you know, obviously you want to continue that momentum and keep that going as long as you can. But, you know, it's real easy to have a really good week and then immediately think, like, you know, my work's cut out for me defending these points. Not defending these points, but, you know, just building on it and i thought I, I handled that really well you know it was obviously my first challenger win last year and it was a big one too it was the most points i'd ever won from a single tournament it was 110 points which you was know, not something that comes around you know easily you know you don't get 100 points every week and uh you know i was uh, you know as the end of the last year was getting closer and you know the closer I got to Dallas again this year you know, I was thinking a little bit like starting to feel a little bit of pressure but once I kind of felt that come on I felt like I did a really good job of just kind of blocking it out worrying about the week I had in front of me the tournaments I had coming up you know I ended the year I thought really well making semis of Houston you know kind of took a little bit of pressure off myself getting 45 points there and then training hard in the off season and starting the year getting another semi in uh, Newport Beach the week before Dallas you know another 45 points so I was pretty feeling pretty good about myself going into Dallas this year knowing I, I had won you know several matches coming into it was playing really well had made up some points to where you know I would didn't feel the pressure to to defend all 110 of the points, you know, that, you know, I, I was able to just take it one match at a time in Dallas and not worry about winning or losing, you know, losing first round, losing all the points. And, you know, I was able to just play a lot more relaxed than I thought I would be, honestly.
0: Mm-hmm. so
1: you talk about playing with freedom is that a you hear so much tennis is at, at a certain level because you're all so good so physically gifted as much as it is physical it's just as much mental and you know you use the word freedom there is there really how could you describe the freedom that comes with knowing you have a couple of points you know saved up now in the bank and you can play a little bit more freely throughout the rest of your year because you have those results how, you know how would you describe that feeling how how prevalent is that feeling to the stresses you feel, you know, week in, week out on tour?
2: Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the tougher things about tennis is confidence kind of comes and goes with the weeks. You know, it's, you can be playing amazing, have a really good week, have, you know, maybe one week, something doesn't work out well, and then, you know, you, it's it's very easy to forget you know, you had a good week, a week or two before. You know, it's, it's tough to not fall into those traps of getting really emotional in wins and losses and stuff and just kind of taking it the one match at a time, the one week at a time that, you know, as best as you can, not worrying about the points and, and defending anything or, you know, to an extent, your ranking, even though your ranking is the most important thing. You know, I think the one thing for me that I, I started, you know, focusing on was that freedom and like the mental side of of the things, and just kind of trying to make sure that I was playing matches and the tournaments where everything is on the line, playing the way I wanted to play, win or lose. You know, at the end of the day, I can I can stomach a loss if I felt like I did what I wanted to do. You know I made the right decisions, maybe I just lost the match because there was a lack of execution or something like that you know it's it's easier to swallow than losing a tight match and feeling like you could have done more or I could have been you know I could have been aggressive on a certain point, maybe I played too tight on like a big point you know it's those are the ones that tend to like really stick with me or you know and and matches that are easier to dwell on so i think that was a big big area for me of just you know kind of giving myself a good green light and not worrying about the consequences as long as i felt like i did what i wanted to do and what i had gone into match the match like planning on doing mm-hmm
1: no for sure I- I'm curious are you a guy who watches film of your own matches or are you a guy who will watch other players on YouTube or a live stream whatever to study uh, the game
2: uh, yeah I mean I-, I tend to do it more for like scouting and stuff mm-hmm. you know, obviously uh, I-, I will watch matches I'll watch guys you know and kind of depends and see what I see but I wouldn't say I go you know 100% I'm just watching tennis, watching matches just to learn, you know, specific things. I feel like when I'm watching, I'm watching for a specific reason. You know, I guess everyone's different. Some guys just love to watch just to watch. Some guys watch to scout. Some guys you know watching yourself is a little different. Obviously I'll I'll do that from time to time, especially when there's specific things that I'm working on. And, and there's some matches where maybe I felt like I did it really well or some matches where I feel like I didn't do it really well you know it's always easier to see it rather than being told from someone you know like being told from a coach or something along those lines but you no know, I think it's so easy nowadays with all the challenger matches being streamed live being archived and with the tennis TV and all that and tennis channel and everything like there's no excuse not to at least you know watch what you can and try to learn what you can I can't imagine what it was like so maybe even like 10 15 20 years ago when all this technology didn't exist you know was nearly impossible I guess to to even think about doing that
1: yeah it's like trying to imagine Cation with hair it's just not going to happen. <laughs> uh, so you know, I, oh, uh, I, I hope he hears that. Yeah, I hope ho- he's listening. Yeah, hopefully. Um, no, yeah, I, I, that's great to hear. And the reason I ask is, well, I have some fun questions for you now down the home stretch. But, you know, so many people are going back in time and watching players and watching classic mm-hmm. matches. And I'm curious for you, was there a guy maybe in tennis, you know, tennis's past, maybe even nowadays who's still playing, whose game style you tried to emulate the most?
2: I mean, growing up, my favorite players were, you know, being American, uh, Roddick was my favorite. You know, I liked Agassi a lot, too. You know, when I was probably, I mean, pretty much my whole junior career, I, I was pretty short. You know, I didn't really hit my growth for until I was, like, 17. So, you know, I always felt like I was going to be one of those kinds of, kind of players that was, was had to work hard and, you know, Outwork and out grind guys. So you know, growing up, I liked, uh, I loved watching like Coria and Hewitt and those kinds of, just workhorse type guys with a ton of fire. But, but uh, you know, it's funny actually. Yesterday morning, you know, ATP is doing a pretty good job of posting some old videos and stuff on Instagram. I woke up and I saw that they had posted a video of Becker and Mooster from, <laughs> I think, Monte Carlo. And I was like amazed watching it. I, I couldn't tell, I don't think it was wooden rackets, but it, it, they were like, you know, just past wooden rackets. Probably one of some of the first like graphite, you know, graphite rackets. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, it was, I was amazed at one, how clean they were hitting the ball for how small those rackets were. <laughs> and how hard they were hitting it and serving and bombing on the red clay. Like it was crazy watching it because, you know, those aren't guys that I really grew up watching very much. And obviously they're two of the best guys to ever play a sport, but things kind of get lost, you know, as generations go as far as who you like to watch. And, you know, it's, it was just kind of, eye-opening for me watching that because it's two guys that I, I don't really watch very much and haven't really watched much at all
1: no I, I completely agree i was watching hewitt and all i could see was diego schwartzman out there i'm like yeah i've seen this before <laughs> that's you know hewitt maybe the more accomplished version comparatively at the time um but yeah uh, the other thing i notice is like and i say this respectfully but, like, if Pat Rafter is floating backhand slices like that, like he did in the 90s, like, I'm telling you, you're just teeing off on passing shots. You're just like, yep, that's too easy. Yep, thank you for yeah, the floor Yeah, I mean,
2: obviously it's impossible to do, but I would love to see a way to, like, merge the two generations to see, like, what would work against players like that nowadays and what players like that would do against guys nowadays you know obviously there's different technology with string and rackets and the physicality i think has gotten a little bit tougher generally speaking you know over the years but you know it's still incredible you still see some of them nowadays at some tournaments you know now that they're coaching they still hit the ball as clean as ever volley as well as ever and you know haven't really lost a step as far as their game goes that it's just it's just crazy to see honestly, like you know I think this time with no tournaments is it's a good opportunity to kind of go back and watch some of those kinds of matches or you know not even you don't have to watch a whole match, just some highlights mm-hmm. to kind of see what things were like back then.
1: Mm-hmm. no we, we can all get our PhDs in tennis history right now it is it, it's <laughs> fascinating it's um, it, it, because guys like Agassi I think Courier you know there's uh, others that I think their games translate to this era I think you put Sampras's mm-hmm. serve in any time and that thing holds up well Um, but okay. yeah I, I, w- I mean you would hope this is the case but I do think with technology that with the increased physicality all of these things the average player has definitely gotten better uh, over the course of history and that's certainly a good thing um yeah so if you're going on a youtube deep dive and it sounds like you don't do it often but you know what are the matches you always end up watching
2: i mean i think i do like to go back and for me i like to go back and watch matches that like i kind of remember watching when they happened. you know so there's like you see some of those old agassi highlights from you know, I, I saw one the other day when he played Baghdadis, you know, his last U.S. Open, that first-round match was, like, incredible. I remember watching that, watching, like, Safin against Federer in Australian Open when Fed tried to hit the tweener on match point. Like, that was just – I remember watching that match when I was – I don't know what year that was, Oh, four maybe. Yeah, you know, I was at home watching it just, like, amazed at that. One, that he would go for that shot in that moment. And two, like just how the crazy matches that you get in, you know, some of these slams that, you know, there's just so many. And then obviously with ESPN a few weeks ago, they were showing like 22 hours, I think, of Fed and Nadal's best matches. And they were showing the Wimbledon final. You know, I, I sat down and watched some of that too. Like just, I personally like watching those matches that I remember when they happened as opposed to, you know matches that i I wasn't around for yet, no, yeah kind had... of brings back the nostalgia and, you know it's still to this day you know it's the the level of tennis hasn't changed generally speaking that much
1: mm-hmm. no, for sure, i half the fun is going back and seeing these old n b c graphics and just what they're saying in the commentary <laughs> and you're like really? I was just
2: yeah I was just gonna say like it's crazy to think you see some of these matches that haven't even been ten years old and like. They're re- they're showing them and they look so bad. Like the quality <laughs> just looks terrible. Like we're so spoiled now. Like the, the insane ultra 4K HD where it's like you feel like you're actually at the match. Yeah,
1: which begs you know, the question. Not, like even no, like ten years from now they're gonna just be laughing at us.
2: Yeah, uh, that's the crazy thing. how much better can it get? <laughs> like uh, at what point? Like at what point is like technology can like how do you keep getting better on things like that you know it's just like crazy
1: no it's it's all in pretty yeah that you know some of the things McEnroe says you're like yep you couldn't say that now but whatever you know you you like (laughs) you're like I'm gonna just quickly move on past that um no there there have been so many good matches for me I always feel bad I don't know why I feel bad for him but I are the very first podcast we ever recorded for I think Cracked Rackets was the day that Federer beat Chilich in the Wimbledon final and Chilich cried during the match. And like, mm-hmm. it'll always stick in my head. I'll be like, yeah, the crying match was our first podcast. I remember that like distinctly. That's just <laughs> the association I have. And I feel horrible about that, but I feel like those things do last. You do for those biggest matches, those best moments. And, my maybe my worst take is that Nadal Federer matches for me get a little bit boring because I'm just like yeah he's gonna attack the Federer one hander I know where this is going um, but th- there are so many good matches you can go back on right
2: yeah I mean I just like seeing the you know the the super tight matches where it's mm-hmm. like you you know what the score is or you know like who wins but some of these like tiebreakers i wumbled in and you know like some of the crazy points like when they played in australia a couple years ago like just i mean i can watch that all day you know just those crazy points and the energy that they get after i mean i don't know how many times they've played each other but it's probably been 60 plus times you know after a while you probably get so tired of playing the other guy but you know like the fire is still there like it's it's crazy to watch.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I think, you know, Federer and Nadal are friends now, right? So that's its own thing. But you watch mm-hmm. the early Federer-Djokovic matches. They didn't like each oh, other. Yeah. They just didn't. And, like, I, I can't prove it, but I can read the body language, and you can tell they're yeah, rivals I mean, first.
2: I feel like even nowadays, you at least, you know, watching it, I still get that, that feeling sometimes that, mm-hmm. you know, obviously they, in, the, in the media... You know they're pretty cordial and and whatever and friendly to an extent, but you know I can guarantee you right now, Fed, is, what is he sitting at? 20 slams, mm-hmm. Rafa at 19, and Djokovic at 17. Like, that's not a record that you want to give up. <laughs> which, uh, who knows what's going to happen in the future? But I think it's pretty, pretty confident to say Djokovic is in a good position right now to pass him, but. You know, it just adds so much more pressure to to each match. And I was actually thinking the other day that some of these matches where, you know, Djokovic has stolen a few matches from Fed with match points in finals and semis of slams, where like that's a huge swing and vent, You know, and Fed could easily have two or three more slams. You know, and to kind of put that separation between him and Nadal and Djokovic would just like looking back would make a huge difference now, but,
1: well, that's tennis. Yeah, no, I'm going to use the, that to the
2: plug. Great things and the bad things in the sport.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to use this to plug our CR Classic Series. The match we started with was uh, the 2011 French Open semi, where Federer knocks off an undefeated Djokovic. And why that match stood out so much was because, you know, the U.S. Open before, Federer had fought, uh, Djokovic had fought off two match points and come back mm-hmm. to win the match. He had beaten him in Australia as well. And Federer was sort of able to cut, you know, stop the bleeding in that moment. And so. Yeah, you know, they are certainly two of the best uh, competitors the game has ever seen. And since you brought up the topic, I'm going to ask you to put on your tennis commentator headphones or headset mindset for a second. You do think, and I agree with you, but you think it'll be Djokovic who ends up with the most slams? I mean, you
2: can never count out Rafa at the French, obviously, and then Fed to an extent at Wimbledon. But you just take their age into account. And just seeing Djokovic play against these guys now, you know, obviously he's not going to beat them every time, but you can see that he's kind of beating them more often than not. And, you know, who knows who's to say what when one of these other younger guys are going to come and get that first breakthrough. But, you know, for the time being, it's Fed, Rafa, and then Djokovic, and with all within three slams of each other. I just feel like it's impossible to say that you know Djokovic can't win three slams in the next. I don't even know five years, where you know most likely Fed won't be playing for the next five years, and you know you could say Rafa too, even you know who knows. But I think it's pretty safe to say that as they're kind of on their decline a little bit in their career, Djokovic is kind of just maybe just past his peak you know he's still playing at an unbelievable level but you know he's far he's far enough behind them in age to where you know he's just got the time and at this stage time is all that really matters Mm
1: -hmm. no that's a great nuanced answer that's what i was looking for you've got a future in this business um so (laughs) i guess let me know whenever you're free um but all right some other fun ones for you down the home stretch because you've been so kind with your time um I asked you, whose game style did you emulate the most? Who, What opponent for you thus far in your career, and you can name anyone you've played, but just out of curiosity, who's the most difficult opponent for you to face, whether it be game style, just how many times you've played that person? When you line up against this guy, who would you be like, ugh, I'm in for a long one?
2: Um, let's see. In for a long one. I mean, there's. it's tough to say because I, uh, most of my matches are long. <laughs> they they probably
1: say that about you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good thing and a bad thing. You know, if, at least I know that I'm giving myself chances every match. But, mm-hmm. I mean, you can say this year I've already played, like you mentioned, I've played Kudla twice and they've been 6-4 in the third both times. And both matches I've had chances to to put myself in a position to win late in the match and unfortunately didn't get it. But, you know, I guess I'll I'll, I'll say that as far as this year goes. You know, (laughs) Dennis and I have had a, a few tight matches and we have, I feel like we have pretty, pretty similar game styles and games. So, you know, we match up fairly well against each other
1: a lot of fun backhands in those matches always um (laughs) you know all right um, as you say flip side of that is who's a guy who you think whenever you see him you're like you know what i match up particularly well with this player i enjoy playing them
2: you know i've always felt like got like the big server guys Mm -hmm. you know obviously they're really annoying to play and like (laughs) It kind of sucks because they take the racket out of their hand out of your hand. you know like you're not gonna have time or rhythm to really play. But you know, I've honestly felt like for most of my career, I've matched up fairly well against them because usually, you know you have a small window of shots to hit. you know the return is massively important against you know the big servers, especially guys that like to serve in volley as well, and I, I kind of like having that target to hit you know I, I, those are they're, they're not fun to play necessarily but i feel like i don't match up super poorly against guys like that
1: mm-hmm. what about lefties i feel like you must feast on lefties given your style or feast is the yeah, wrong word I, but pref- enjoy it
2: yeah no i got exactly no I've, I've never felt like super uncomfortable playing against a lefty mm-hmm. um you know there's obviously not there there are plenty of lefties but you know there's way more righties so it, kind of comes and goes you know, I felt like there was a period last year where I kind of played like a bunch of lefties kind of in a short amount of time um, but this year I don't know if I've even played well I guess the Bellucci match
1: mm-hmm.
2: was you know crazy but yeah, you know, I don't mind playing against lefties honestly
1: no, I'm looking through your ITF page right now. Belucci, <laughs> Donald Young, Michael Redlicky, and I think I saw one more, and Liam Brody, the last five lefties yeah. you've placed, 5-0, and o, Mitchell Kruger. So that sounds yeah. like a trend I to didn't. me. There you go. I didn't know that stat, but yeah, it's good to know. That's uh, uh, offhand crack racket stats. That's our stats bureau and analysis, <laughs> our Elias. Um, but, yeah, so, all right, again, home stretch here. For you, the most fun guy to hang out with in the locker room.
2: Uh, I mean, pretty much all the guys that, you know, we're all friends. Um, You know, I obviously lived with Bjorn for a long time, so we're good friends and Brad Klon and with Noah Rubin and and Mackie and Tommy Riley, all those clowns. (laughs) You know, it's always, always an entertaining time for sure. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I, most of the american guys, you know, we all get along so it's it's fun to hang out with them.
1: Mm-hmm. Any pranks pulled in the locker room?
2: Uh, I mean none, I don't, you know, not one in particular comes to mind, but for sure those guys I just mentioned like the Tommy and Riley's, they're the most the most prankful guys that where you kind of have to <laughs> kind of keep an eye on them sometimes and you know, make sure you're they're not like up to something that you don't see.
1: No, of course. Um, all right. Easier said than done. Sometimes. <laughs> well, I feel like Riley, you can always see, probably, but the rest—that's that's true. Yeah. yeah, the rest is a little <laughs> bit more difficult. Um, you mentioned you were, or you know, you're scheduled to play world team tennis this uh, summer, and hopefully, we do get to the point where we see that, and you know, we see. Uh, and you're a guy who didn't get to play college tennis, who went straight to the pros. Mm-hmm. But uh, whether it's the world team tennis or Labor Cup style events obviously the new ATP Cup and Davis Cup, Fed Cup, all of these different team formats. Uh, you know, you sort of went over this earlier, but what was the appeal for you of playing World Team Tennis this summer? And, you know, financials aside, because that's obviously the biggest piece of the equation, but mm-hmm. is would an increase in team events be something you would like to see on tour?
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, as far as the the ATP sanctioned team events, there's definitely some tweaking and changes that can be made. You know, say what you will about ATP Cup, you know, you can't argue that it wasn't successful and didn't bring the energy and everything that they were hoping for. Um, you know, for me, for team tennis, I played last year for the first time. You know, I did a week. I was like one of the, I don't know what they call it, but you know, I, I substituted. For the last week of the Philadelphia Freedom season last year, and I then think, the playoffs. I think that Vegas. means
1: they claimed you off the waiver wire. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go.
2: But I mean, I had never done it before. I'd watched it on TV a bunch, and you know, it always looked interesting. But I had a, I had a, a ton of fun. You know, it's, it's nice to get like a little, getting the same level of competition that you would be getting in regular tournaments, but with just the added aspects of throwing in the doubles and the mixed doubles and the teammates and the cheering and the music in between points and the crowd involvement. Like it was just a completely different experience for me. I loved it. And, you know, like you said, putting the financials aside, I think it was just, just even doing that one week last year and having a great time was the driving factor for me to decide this year. And I'm just, praying that it is able to happen because i think it would be like the perfect kind of jumping off point to get tennis back going you uh, know again hopefully so and it's obviously it's set up to do well and and this these circumstances if things get back to normal so you know i'm looking really forward to it and i'm hoping that it's able to go on
1: yeah any tennis event with an all-star weekend i'm in on so you know my, my thoughts on it <laughs> exactly are, yeah that's got to just be really fun um all right uh you know three sh- questions here for you down the home stretch we are all in quarantine it's all affected our daily lives what is the worst quarantine purchase you have made during this time period
2: huh. Oh, let me tell you, I haven't made that many, to be <laughs> honest. For me, it's been a it's been a good month for my credit card statement, you know, with no travel and stuff. But uh, oh, the, I mean, the worst purchase I bought was actually, I bought a, a bucket of pressureless pen balls from Amazon because I didn't have any balls here, and the day after they arrived, they shut down the court that I had been using you know like I had, there was a private court in the neighborhood mm-hmm. they shut it down locked it up so you know i spent 40 something bucks on on these balls that you know I, I knew like it wasn't great but it was better than not having anything you know for a professional tennis player to buy pressureless balls <laughs> in, in a pin a bucket like you know, it was it was kind of a low for me but you know at the end of the day it's can't be picky, you know, got to do what you got to do.
1: For me, it was, they had two for five on, you know, Easter candy. It was the bags of Reese's (laughs) eggs. And I, you know, I was like, well, maybe I'll buy just one. That's a great purchase. Yeah, well, you say that, but I know that I ate every egg in both of those two bags (laughs) in like a week, week and a half span. And it's just, it's not great. And so I guess that leads to my next one. How often are you going to the refrigerator right now? Because for Uh, me, it's just unbearable.
2: You know, like... I'm always, I'm like one of those guys who, luckily, you know, has feel like can eat whatever they want and you know not feel the effects of it mm-hmm. to an extent. So you know I've, I'm always I'm a huge snacker. Like you know I'll have my three meals or so throughout the day, but you know periodically throughout the day, like I, I feel like I'm always just craving something random or something small. So I mean the amount of trips to the fridge are are definitely are up there but you know like I said earlier I'm making sure that I kind of get those home workouts going every day to at least you know keep keep my my level to stand you know might not be gaining a whole lot right now, but you know at least i'm not losing anything
1: mm-hmm. no it's about yeah the it's the little comforts opening the fridge for me'm I'm, I'm like <laughs> i'm going to force myself to do ten push ups every time I open it from here on out i'm like that's that's, that's good self control if you can do that yeah will it happen we'll see, um but you know it's just a it's a nice thought that I can. Tell you, and you're not going to get to see whether I do it or not, I suppose. Um, all right. What about any new hobbies for you? New things you've picked up just being home all this time?
2: You know, like I've thought to myself, like what I would want to do is, you know, start like a musical instrument or something. But obviously, right now, it's impossible to go out and really buy anything. <laughs> so, you know, I wouldn't say I've really started any like new hobbies. Now, I've been watching a lot of Netflix and a lot of movies and trying to read some books every now and then but you know, I, the one thing I have done I'll say is I've been doing my home workouts every day in the in the front yard shirtless because it's been real sunny I'm finally getting my my farmer's tan to like <laughs> be unnoticeable which has been a goal of mine for like years so I'm enjoying that for the time being Obviously, once tournaments come back, that's going to go out the window because, you know, playing out in the sun with the shirts. But, you know, I'm enjoying it for the time being.
1: I'm guessing for you it's like tricep up and ankle down?
2: Oh, I've given up on the ankles. No, like, (laughs) that's that's a given. But for me, it was all arms. It was, like, middle of the bicep up was just, like, the most defined solid line you've ever seen for a tan line in. I'm finally at the point where it's blurred. So yeah. mission success for me right now.
1: Yeah, that's a definite win. I had a, I went to an NCAA tournament and, you know, like you, I'm fair skinned. We'll put that kindly. Um, and <laughs> I just like, I was wearing a red shirt and my arms just outdid like the, it, they were equally red. And then you pulled up the sleeve <laughs> and it was just, it was horrible. It's like an equator and you're just like, this is, it's just devastating.
2: So, I mean, I'm, it's the little victories.
1: Yeah, exactly. Tanning is your biggest hobby. I'll take it. Um, that's a win. Um, <laughs> all right, and, and last one. Any good Netflix shows? What's your go-to right now?
2: Oh, let's see. I started with – I finished – it's not Netflix, but I finished The Outsider mm-hmm. on HBO. Then I finished Narcos Mexico Season 2. Good season. Then I finished really good. Yeah. Ozark Season 3 was amazing. And uh, right now I'm finishing Money Heist. Got that. Caught up on a few movies that I haven't watched. <laughs> yeah. no. Making making the most of my time.
1: That's a win. I it, as I,
2: best as I can. I was
1: gonna say I like your taste in show in movie. I was gonna say if, one to throw in there if you're bored, The Last Kingdom on Netflix, and the newest season's coming out soon. But I, I promise you'll enjoy it. If though if if All along right. with those other you know those other series you mentioned
2: i we'll go check that one out. Yeah, throw that. Always out. looking for good recommendations. Yeah. Especially
1: now. You know, I mean, other than the entire platform of crack rackets content. I mean that first, but then <laughs> you know, oh, the best last year. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, of course. But Mitchell, uh, thank you so much for taking the time for chatting. Stay safe, stay healthy, and of course, now that we've done part two, you know we gotta set up part three sometime in the future.
2: Yep. For sure. Yep. Looking forward
1: to it. Yep, take it easy, and again, stay safe. Thanks, you too. I want to thank all of you listeners for taking the time to listen to our conversation with Mitchell Kruger and of course huge shout out to him for giving us an hour of his time it was a really fun conversation and so we just wanted to keep rocking and rolling when the conversations are good uh, there's no need to stop them especially now when you know we're all looking for ways to uh, just take a moment to get away from the stresses of our daily life so huge shout out huge thank you to Mitchell hope he manages to stay both safe and healthy and really look forward to getting uh, to seeing him back on the court because his level of play continues to get better and better as his career progresses. Uh, just a quick reminder before we wrap this interview, if you have missed any of our content, be sure to go to our website, CrackRackets.com. our YouTube channel, Rocking and Rolling things like Overserved and CR Classics, Interviews Turned to, uh, to Video podcast and more, all found on there. It's three clicks. You can subscribe in under 30 seconds or your money back guaranteed uh, so be sure all of you to go check that out if you can. It would mean the world to Super Producer Daniel Westoff. And as I say, as soon as we get to a 1,000 subscribers, I'll stop pestering you all. But until that moment, I know that's a number we can achieve. So just get on there. Throw us a quick subscribe. It would mean the world to us. Of course, we always will continue to ask you to like, rate, subscribe, review this podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, the Mini Break Podcasts. We've been so fortunate to get the chance to talk to so many great guests over these past couple of months, you know, people like Bethany Maddox-Sands, Christian, Dennis Kudla, Mitchell, uh, Chris Woodruff, Paul Anacone, uh, who, uh, you know, more and more Steve Weissman and Uh, Amy Frazier and just so many great people across different time spans of the game so if you've missed any of those conversations go check them out and of course we appreciate any feedback you guys give us whether it's on the iTunes commentary feed whether it's on social media where you can find all of us Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. It's at cracked rackets, or for me personally, you want to reach out and say, "Hey, this joke wasn't funny at all." Don't say things like that. It's at great shot pod, and go for it. I love to, you know, interact with as many of you as I can. Certainly, as I mentioned to Mitchell, any conversation at this point just feels so so lovely, uh, because we all obviously are missing social interactions as we try to safe safely and healthily get through this coronavirus pandemic. And the people who help me get through every day here at cracked rackets are super producers max fliegner and daniel westoff who have a bit f- <laughs> of an editing job to do as they always do for each of these pods they continue to kill it at the highest quality editors i try to give them and you the fans the highest quality interviews possible because i know we have the highest quality fans as well so just a high quality operation all the way through uh, but again If you've missed any of our content, the website is CrackedRackets.com. The podcasts are the Cracked Interviews podcast you're listening to now, the Great Shot podcast, the Mini Break, all of which you can find on your various podcast platforms. But for now, for our wonderful guest, Mitchell Kruger, for our super producers, Max Ligner and Daniel Westhoff, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. That's today's Cracked Interview, folks. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next time. Stay safe and stay healthy.